0: From fake meat and robot chefs to ghost kitchens and delivery drones, the restaurant industry is rapidly evolving. Welcome to Food Fighters, bringing you interviews with the leading industry trailblazers. I'm your host, Zach Goldstein. Welcome back to Food Fighters. I'm your host, Zach Goldstein, pleased to be joined by Greg Creed, who's the former chief executive officer of Young Brands from 2015 to 2019, served on the board of directors until 2020. Before being the CEO of Yum, Greg was head of Taco Bell, the nation's leading Mexican-style quick-service restaurant chain. Since retiring at the end of 2019, Greg has started a small unconsulting company called Creed Unco, focused on helping companies with brand building, franchising, culture, and leadership. Greg, thrilled to have you on Food Fighters. Thanks for joining us.
1: Zach, it's my absolute pleasure to be on.
0: So you actually have, uh, have a book coming out in June focused on what you call Red. In fact, the book is titled Red Marketing, The Three Ingredients of Leading Brands. Tell us about Red and how it dictated your time at Taco Bell and at Young.
1: Sure, Zach. Well, I think, you know, I want to start with the premise that marketing is simple, but it's not easy. And so what Ken Manch, who co-wrote the book with me, we set out to do is to try and make it easy. And um, we had been working on, you know, at Yum, we, are, we have three brands, KFC, Pizza, Taco Bell, actually four now with Habit, which they've acquired since I left, uh, in over 150 countries. And so the challenge was, how do you take something and make it really easy? And that was, how do we found, find a framework within which we believed, if you followed the framework, you could do brilliant marketing? And that framework was the letters red, red R for relevance, E for easy, and D for distinctiveness. And we used that framework around the world. And what I was really excited about was that we took our global same-store sales growth in 2014 was pretty much flat around the world. And we took that to close to 4% when I retired at the end of 2019. Now, 4% may not sound like a great number in some categories, but if you're doing $50 billion a year, you know 4% means you're adding $2 billion in same-store sales growth at another I had another 2 billion from new unit openings and all of a sudden you got yourself an 8% growth company. So what I loved about Red was we tried to make it simple, easy to understand, and what we demonstrated at Yum is that applying Red really did deliver significant sales growth. And that's that's what I'm really excited about.
0: So you were at the helm of Taco Bell during some pretty transformative years, slogans that we all know still Think outside the bun, uh, the launch of the iconic Doritos, Locos, Tacos, even the cantina concepts. All of this, I would imagine, ties into this, this red concept and, and, in particular, being differentiated and delivering an easy experience for customers.
1: Yeah, that's very much so. I think the first thing you've got to do is make sure that what you've got to offer is relevant. And there's there's sort of three parts relevant. You've got to be functionally relevant. And what we did at Taco Bell many years ago is we decided to make the product much more portable. And if you think about the products we launched, like the quesadilla, the grilled Stuff burrito and the crunch wrap, they were all designed around making the product just simply more portable because it was a little messy in those times to eat. But you've also got to make sure that it is culturally relevant. One of the key reasons Taco Bell had so much success was they really did tap into what I call, you know, sort of this cultural relevance because, you know, people want to brands that demonstrate they understand them. So the messaging that you deliver isn't just about whatever you want to sell. It's about demonstrating to the people that love your brand that you get them. And so that was a real a part of it. Obviously, ease. I think one of the big breakthroughs in marketing is I grew up in what I call, when I say I grew up, you know, many years ago in the better beats, better world. I worked at Unilever and detergents. And so you know, Tide would make shirts wider and Whisk would make it wider and then Tide would make it wider. And I was like, how white can you make a white shirt? <laughs> um, and if you think about it today, the Tide advertising isn't about performance, it's about ease, it's about these pods. And so I think what we've come into today is, I guess, a part of, of the life stage of marketing, which is that easy beats better. If you do something easier than your competitors, even if they might do it a little better, Ease is going to win, and you've got Amazon to sort of, you know, arguably, you know, pay for all of that. So, ease became critically important. Ease to order, ease to pay, ease to get, easy to understand. All of those things have become critically important. Then to your to your point, Zach, you've got to make the brand distinctive. It's got to be distinctive in its own voice. And what's really interesting is I think if you look at a brand, and I'm I'm sort of guilty of this, I look at all brands because it's just my habit. You sort of look at them and I go, wow, is that brand relevant? Is it easy or is it distinctive? And sometimes you've got all three problems. Sometimes you might only have two of the three. And the worst thing you can do is if you've got a brand that's really distinctive but not relevant, I hate it when I see marketing that just makes it more distinctive, but you aren't addressing the issue of you know, relevance or ease or whatever it happens mm. to be. So that's how I sort of see it. We've tried to make a really complex thing called marketing as easy as we can so people can be more successful.
0: Yeah, the, the easy one in particular is interesting because arguably it has been the most transformational change in the restaurant industry with the arrival of third-party delivery. Uh, and, and you and I have talked about this. Uh, it, it varies by the day, depending on market cap. Uh, but there has been a period where DoorDash eclipsed Yum and Yum China in market cap to be what would be the third largest restaurant in, in, in the world. As you think about easy and the arrival of third-party delivery and the concepts of off-premise that extend beyond drive throughs uh, we've seen a big change. And I'm, I'm interested in how red applies in the restaurant world when now you have this new both cooperative but also threatening presence in
1: third-party. Yeah, it's a great question. And all this has been accelerated through COVID, right? So Mm
0: -hmm. obviously
1: there was a move to delivery, you know, businesses were moving to delivery. Why? Because delivery is easier. You know, it's much easier to have your food delivered uh, than it is to obviously, you know, either hop in your car or be in your car or, you know, want to go out and get the food. COVID accelerated all of that. And so you're right, which is on the one hand, you've got this sort of exponential growth in people who offer delivery services. And at the same time, there's obviously fees attached to that. So there's this challenge within the restaurant industry, which is the trend is towards delivery. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important is this whole question of once we get out of COVID, what new habits do we keep and what old habits do we go back to? And I think the answer to that is also about ease, whichever is easiest. If the new habit is easier than the old habit, we'll stay with it. If the old habit is easier than the new habit, we'll probably go back to it. So I don't see, you know, delivery, declining at all. I think it will continue to grow. It's also interesting, and I saw that uh, the Taco Bell are building walk-up windows at the restaurant. So, you know, many years ago, you know, there were all those rules, oh, you can't walk up to the drive through window. And I've seen funny jokes of people on horseback, you know, trying to sort of go through a drive through <laughs> um, It was funny when I got asked this about 12 months ago, I thought the concept of a walk-up window would be actually very attractive for people who don't still want to go into a restaurant but maybe want to you know walk up, or people who in urban areas aren't in a car, and uh, obviously want to have a walk up experience. So to your point, I think COVID has dramatically changed the landscape. It has accelerated things like delivery. It has accelerated obviously the growth of the delivery third parties. At the same time, you know what Yum was lucky to have was which was was a delivery business in Pizza Hut. So internally, you know we've got a delivery business. That's obviously accelerated its growth during COVID, and I just don't think any of those factors are going to change. Mobile ordering, mobile payment, um, you know, the drive-through. Um, you know, you're now seeing multi-lane drive-throughs being built. Yum is building drive-throughs in Australia. They built a five-lane drive-through at a KFC where. Wow. It's more like imagine when you go to the airport. There's all those sort of barriers lined up, and they open up to let you in, sort of car flow. It's not It's not a stacked five lane. It's sort of like a drive. It's like a going into the airport five lane. Two of them are dedicated to the, the traditional, I want to drive up and place an order. Two of them are dedicated to people who have already placed a digital order in advance and one can be flexed either way. So, you know, just the entire look and feel of restaurants is changing. You know, people are talking about building restaurants without any dining, where it'll simply be the, I guess, the cooking part of it. And then you'll either walk up or driver, uh, or obviously food will get delivered from there. So there's some, probably more change occurring in the restaurant industry right now, accelerated by COVID than I've probably seen in the 25 years I've been in the business.
0: Completely agree. And in fact, you had an interesting seat because several of your brands were actually really focused on the the marketing differentiators, the, the red elements as you now call them, whereas Pizza Hut, has been a digitally-enabled brand well before many of the the industry, uh, many of the brands in the industry. And so you've seen that firsthand. I mean, there was a period where now everyone's focusing on loyalty, frankly, including Taco Bell and capturing data and on digital. But Pizza Hut was doing that way before the other brands.
1: Yeah, look, I think to be a great market, you know, the old adage, marketing is an art and a science. Well, you could argue now marketing is art and data, Because really, data has become the science part of what was the joke about, you know, art or science. And in order to be successful, you need both. I don't think you can just get insights out of data. But without data, I don't know how you find insights. And so, you know, I think the skill set that's required for the marketer of the future is someone who is obviously comfortable in the data area, but equally comfortable in what I call the art side, the intuition uh, side of it. Because the role of a marketer is what I call SOBO. And that's gonna sound a little crazy, but SOBO stands for sales overnight, brand over time. And so if you're in marketing, you you really have those two jobs. Your job is to drive sales overnight, but at the same time, build the brand over time. And so you need a skill set that enables you to do both. So you have to be comfortable. And you have to feel very comfortable in in diving into the data, but equally, you have to sort of back your intuition to turn that, that data into insights, which will make your brand, as we said earlier, relevant, easy, and distinctive. So, it's exciting times. And it's funny because I've seen marketers that are great at the sales overnight part, not great at the brand over time. I've seen people who are great at the brand over time, not so good at the sales overnight, but the complete marketer the complete market and the ones that will get the really big jobs at the really big companies will demonstrate an ability to drive sales overnight and build the brand over time.
0: And and that wasn't always the case uh, in, in restaurants. The reality is your success was largely tied to where did you put your stores? What did you have good site selection? Did you have good enough food innovation that you kept people excited? And did you not mess up the service? Right. And so this idea that now suddenly, We're adding to that mix. You better have data about customers so that you can drive repeat purchasing, probably the most competitive environment the restaurant industry has ever seen. That does require a new mindset for marketers, and it's hard to get
1: data. I mean, one of the really exciting things is the opportunity to find about what I'll call unknown existing customers. So if you think about through CRM and loyalty today, you know some percentage, and the percentage will differ by brand you know some percentage of your customers intimately. And in Pizza Hut's case, you know you know their home address, their email address, you know their cell phone number, so you know all of that sort of stuff. Not so much, obviously, in other brands. And then there obviously there are people who use you. They, they come to your brand, but you just don't know who they are, and therefore you can't market to them. And, so, uh, and then obviously there's the non-users. And so if you go back to how do you drive sales in any business, but certainly in the restaurant business, it's increase your reach, drive your frequency, and raise your check. That's sort of the magic formula of of things that you can do. So, I think the emergence of things like the new data network and the ability to identify who your existing but unknown customers are, I think that is also another huge breakthrough
0: completely agree when we think about the data capture that Amazon has which is basically 100% when you yeah. think about the data capture that DoorDash has which is definitely 100% and then you think about the leaders in the restaurant category you know even Starbucks which is well known for its loyalty program and still below 50% data capture there's a big disadvantage there and so you're exactly right that there's an opportunity to learn more about those otherwise unknown customers to deliver a more more personalized experience.
1: I think restaurants of the future need to partner with people at the cutting edge of expertise that you need, but you don't necessarily need or have in-house. Another great example was, so when I was running Taco Bell, I think it was like 2010, we bought a company called NetBase Quid, or now NetBase Quid, it was NetBase in those days, which was a social monitoring service. I call it social intelligence. NetBase helped Taco Bell become culturally relevant, and we would never have been able to do it. And we couldn't obviously afford to put, you know, oh, let's just we'll buy NetBase or we'll do our own NetBase. You can't do that sort of stuff. So, thinking about the partners that you that you choose in the restaurant industry is critically important. Who's going to do your loyalty program? Who's going to be your you know, social monitoring, social intelligence program. Who's going to help you find these, you know, existing but unknown customers? And choosing those people and the partners that you want is critically important because you simply won't have that capability inside the organization. And I would argue you don't need it inside the organization. You need people inside the organization that can use all of those relationships to make your brand, it's going to surprise everyone, more relevant, more easy, and more distinctive.
0: Well, one of the things that I've heard, and I think is unique, there's a lot of focus in the restaurant industry on, let me just check the box on what the big guys are doing. Let me just follow the app development or the ordering or the loyalty or whatever it is. And I want to see someone bigger than me. And what you have said is you actually strove to not follow the yes. leader in your category. You wanted to be different.
1: My analogy is if you're If you're on the road and you're following the car in front, you'll never come first in the race. You have to pass the car in front in order to become first. So if all you're simply doing is following the leader, you will never become the leader. You have to basically, you know, put your indicator on, though not many people put their indicator on anymore, you know, (laughs) go out, accelerate and pass whoever the leader happens to be. So... The thing I loved, it was funny, when I ran Taco Bell, I loved it was because I always used to say, you know, everybody was sort of focused on burgers and chicken. And the biggest selling items in QSR were hamburgers and chicken sandwiches. And the joke was at Taco Bell, we didn't sell either. And I never wanted to sell either because there were so many places where you could go and buy a traditional chicken sandwich or a traditional hamburger. But, you know, where could you go and buy a Crunch Wrap? You know, where you couldn't go and buy a Crunch Wrap? Where can you go and get a Mountain Dew Baja Blast? You know, it doesn't have to just be food that makes you distinctive. You know, a lot of people sort of think, oh, it's all about the food or the experiences. But I would argue at Taco Bell, beverages like Mountain Dew Baja Blast made the brand just as distinctive as the customer experience and products like Crunch Wrap or, you know, Nacho Fries or Doritos Locos Taco. They were critically important. But to stop at just food or to stop at just the experience and not say, how can I use everything in my arsenal, everything I do in order to make myself distinctive, then I think you're just not doing it. I'll be honest, you're just not getting the most out of the brand that you can get out of it.
0: And it meant taking risks. Uh, Certainly, where we sit now, looking back on the Doritos Locos Taco, a a huge cross-brand effort with critical acclaim certainly didn't wasn't obvious at the time. It required a risk on your relevance and
1: distinctiveness. Yeah, it was funny. I think it also, it, I remember David Novak phoned me up and jokingly said, he implied I was risking my career. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, Frito-Lay had to build four lines to make this stuff and we were spending like 50 to $60 million marketing it. So it was, it was a big deal. But to your point, but I think this is when, Zach, if you go back to this idea of, you know, you just don't slap ideas up against the wall. You know, at Yam we have a very defined product development process. We were obviously using things like NetBase to make sure we were culturally in tune. It was pretty clear that people who love Doritos love Taco Bell and people who love Taco Bell love Doritos. And it was interesting. I gave that brief to the team in 2010 because in 2012, we were celebrating our 50th birthday. And if you're a brand like Taco Bell, you don't want to let anyone know you're 50 years old. And so we used the DLT because the other joke I said was our name's Taco Bell and we've done a lot of, you know, a lot of innovation not in tacos. And so I said to the team, you know, for our 50th anniversary, I want a breakthrough taco idea that becomes the celebration and not the fact we're 50 years old. But as you said, great collaboration with our friends at PepsiCo or Frito Lay and not without its risk because Frito Lay had to take a huge risk in entrusting their Doritos brand to Taco Bell. And then there were just even funny little things like uh, a taco shell is bent, as you know, to make, it, to make a shell. And Dorito's formula was designed to make flat, you know, uh, triangle chips. So there was some technology that had to happen. It took us probably two and a half three years from concept to national launch. It, it was a big deal, a lot of money, but ultimately it, it became a billion dollar brand. I mean that's a B, a billion dollar brand for Taco Bell in you know, 12 months. It's amazing. It's amazing. Food Fighters, stay on the cutting edge.
0: On the flip side of the coin, you've taken risks to defend your brand as well. And frankly, quite, quite aggressively def- defend the brand. Who's come yeah. after you and what did you do about that?
1: Yeah, so a few years ago, I'm not sure exactly. We we had a plaintiff's attorneys from Alabama that found someone in California to sue us for not having enough beef in our meat, which was obviously not correct. So. You know, often what a company will do is you either deny it, you know, you go into hibernation, you sort of hunker down and you hope it all goes away. We took out full page ads saying, uh, thank you for suing us. Here are the facts. And we obviously, one of the facts was we weren't going to, you know, pay anything because we didn't believe we needed to pay anything. And then, funnily enough, the lawsuit got withdrawn. And then, when the lawsuit was withdrawn, we ran another bunch of ads that said, would it kill you to say you're sorry? The thing that was. <laughs> The thing that was even more funny is uh, we found out where the plaintiff's attorneys played golf in Birmingham, Alabama. And so we bought all the uh, outdoor signage around the golf course so that when all of these guys, the plaintiff's attorneys' friends, would be driving to golf, they'd realize that obviously we had stood up, fought back, and won, and that hopefully their friends would give them crap uh, at golf. So I'm not against a little bit of retribution, but again, You know what's interesting we never got another we have never had another plaintiff's lawsuit against taco bell since that time right (laughs) and so i i think often brands sort of go into oh you know we'll just be quiet and you know it'll all roll over and no if your brand is you know is distinctive it has to be distinctive even when you're being attacked not just when you're doing the attacking it's
0: just just an awesome story and and it pays off but again uh, a risk, a different type of risk, and this time defending your brand, but yeah, one I mean, that paid you, know, you could deal with those types of lawsuits uh, every month for the next ten years. Oh, if, yeah. If and, and let's be right. honest:
1: the plaintiffs' attorneys never want the forty million they're suing you for; they just want the four million to go away. Right? We put in our ad: we were not going to pay a penny. We actually put that in one of the ads. You know, one of the bullet points: we're not paying a penny. And so, you know, at the end, they were like, well, you know, if you give us 2000000 million, we'll go away. I said, reread, you know, point number three, we're not paying you a penny. And we didn't. And you're right. I'm not saying plaintiff's attorneys didn't go after our competitors or other people. But the really good news is, I think because they realized we would fight back uh, because we believed in our story. We believed in in the brand. And as you said, the brand has to you know, be itself either when it's being attacked or when it's in attack mode, whatever it is, you ca- you've got to stay true to what that brand is.
0: Well, one other area that you have uh, mm-hmm. really committed to staying true, you were named an industry titan by Women's Food Service Forum for driving gender equity, and you've put considerable effort into forging diversity and inclusion within the workplace. Why was this important and, and a brand differentiator for you? And how do you see the importance of growing inclusion and diversity in the in the food service world
1: uh, over the next five to 10 years? Well, thank you for asking that question, because it's a very important question. And it's also an area that needs dramatic change. Look, you know, it's funny. I, I'm an only child, so I, I didn't even grow up with a brother or even a sister. But let's not kid ourselves. When I went to school, the smartest kids in school or university were the women, not the guys. And so I'm like, well, if they're the smartest people, why are they not in positions of leadership? And why are they why are they not more of them in positions of leadership? And so I was also lucky to partner with an amazing uh, lady, Tracy Skeens, who was the Chief People Officer, uh, now Chief Operating Officer, which I'm delighted uh, at young. And we basically you know, set about to make a difference. And you know, I think people, you know, people think you get judged by your words, but let's be honest, you only get judged by your actions. And so working with Tracy, we were absolutely committed to um, making the making Yum a better place to be. So we increased paid maternity leave, I think from six weeks to 18 weeks, paternity or partner leave and in, in any form to seven weeks. We gave everyone at least three weeks vacation way before it became the norm. We went to permanent half day Fridays. I think all of those helped. But the underlying, most important thing was we created a culture, I think, in which women believed they had an equal opportunity to be successful. And um, I'm probably proud of that work. Um, You know, at my retirement party, people were like, you know, what are you most proud of? You know, think outside the barn or live mass or Doritos Locos Tacos. And I was like, no, I think, you know, uh, when I started, we had 28% of the senior roles were held by women. And when I retired, it was 48%. And I think that number is probably now over 50. So I'm a huge believer in diversity and inclusion. And I think you just are going to be more successful. And, and to make the point, um, for, for many years, Taco Bell was the most successful division in business in Yam. And I used to link that in, intrinsically to we had the most diverse leadership team. And mm-hmm. my point was, I had the most diverse leadership team, and that was why we were delivering the, the best results. And, you know, at one stage, I had women running the KFC business in Canada, Australia, China, Thailand, uh, Russia, and the UK. Oh, I may have forgotten. If I did, I apologize. And what were our most successful KFC business? Those ones. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to be successful, then, as I said, you know, hire the best people around you. And as I said, I'm very proud of what we achieved. I'm very proud of my partnership with Tracy Skeens. And, um, you know, I, I just believe we created a culture in which you could be your true self and a culture that enabled everyone to be successful based on merit, not on gender or race or religion.
0: Well, it's really powerful and I appreciate you, your emphasis there because it's, it's not just about the right thing to do, quote unquote, you are actually emphasizing uh, emphatically that it's about driving business outcomes, uh, yeah. directly tying the value of diversity to my,
1: driving business outcomes. Zach, my fundamental belief is that culture fuels results. And if you think about those of us that went to business school, we were taught strategy, structure, culture. That was like, you know, write the strategy, work out what the structure is to bring the strategy to life into culture. Those three things are the right things. They're just in the wrong order. The order has to be culture, strategy, structure culture must come first. Because without culture coming first, how do you write a strategy that your organization has any chance of implementing? And there's two parts to culture. There's the internal culture of the organization, but there's also the culture of what is happening in society today. You cannot ignore what is going on in society if you're going to write a brand strategy that's going to be successful. Go back to the point that People want brands that demonstrate they understand them. Well, if you don't demonstrate, you understand the cultural context in which brands are being marketed, you have zero chance, zero chance of being successful. So for me, the model going forward is culture, strategy, structure. And I absolutely know that culture fuels results because where we had the best culture and at Yum, by the way, everyone gets a culture rating and a performance rating every year. I think that is unique in the industry you don't, you know, so everyone gets a performance rating in most companies. We also give you a culture rating. And what we could correlate is the most successful businesses were where we had people who had the highest culture score and the highest sort of KPI performance score. And that was undeniable. And so I will go to my grave saying that culture fuels results. It's great. It's it's great and truly unique. Um, And I'll I'll
0: transition it into uh, one final question, which is, Across the restaurant industry, there is a lot of concern, let's call it what it is, about whether there's going to be a federal change in in minimum wage. This is a cultural question as well. And the reality is CEOs at public companies have to answer this question in a very specific way. But you have the luxury of no longer being uh, a public company CEO. How should the restaurant industry be thinking about minimum wage and the balance between Uh, economics that are viable for restaurants, and making sure that your employees are taken care of?
1: It's a great question. So let me answer it first of all, sort of, you know, economically. The first thing is that in most restaurants, labor is about 30% of sales, right? So, you know, cost of labor is about 30%. So first of all, if wages go up, and I do think they should go up, so I'll get to that bit in a second, It's not like your costs have gone up 100%. You've got 30% of your cost base has gone up. But the, the thing about a minimum wage increase is that it's sort of like a tide. It rises all boats. I actually think the hardest thing in our industry is when every Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know, city, authority, council, whatever you call it, has completely different rates, which is what is the situation today. That makes it very difficult to um, manage. It makes it difficult to price accordingly. So, look, let's not kid ourselves. If costs go up, prices will go up as well. But I'll give an example. Like in Australia, obviously I'm Australian, but I started my career there with, with Yum. You know, minimum wage is like, I think, $21 Australian, which is about $15 US. So, you know, do combo prices cost closer to $10 than $7? Yes, they do. But, you know, I would argue our KFC Australia business and now with Taco Bell and also pizza are probably some of our most successful businesses in the um, system. So I do think it's important to pay a living wage. I do think it's important that, you know, it obviously rises not overnight, but, you know, so we've got time to, you know, with a dollar and another dollar and another dollar and another dollar as it affects everyone equally. It's not, this is not a disadvantage. Like, you know, I always think of the days when, you know, when I was at KFC in Australia, if beef prices went down, it made burgers cheaper than you know the relative price of a chicken sandwich. Or if chicken prices went down, it made chicken, you know, cheaper. That's not the case with wages. Wages will rise everybody. So I think socially it's the right thing to do. I think economically it's the right thing to do. I think within the industry, what you'll see is, you know, it's only a third of the cost base. And yes, prices will rise, but I think that is a good outcome. Or, you know, from a balance of Society shareholder outcome, I think it's the right outcome. So I do think it will happen. I just hope it happens over time and not, you know, where you try to add the prices up, you know, jack on $3 overnight. I think that would be disruptive to the industry. Great.
0: Great. Well, Greg, uh, very much appreciate the time. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, it sounds like you are keeping busy by creating an unconsulting company in Creed Unco. So that will keep you busy. Uh, it sounds like you were busy in writing this book, Red Marketing: The Three Ingredients of Leading Brands, coming out June eighth. I believe pre-orders are now open on Amazon. And I am also greatly appreciative of the small amount of your time and your support of, of thanks and some of our initiatives. So, Greg, thanks so much for the conversation and congrats on everything that you've done.
1: Zach, thank you. I had a fun time. Thanks for the questions, and um, I love this industry. I think it's just got greatness ahead of it, um, so long as we do the right thing and we build amazing brands. So again, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, buddy. Awesome. Have a good one. Thanks, mate. You've been listening to Food Fighters with me, Zach Goldstein.
0: To subscribe to the podcast or to learn more about our featured guest, visit thanks.com slash foodfighters. That's thanks spelled T-H-A-N-X dot com foodfighters. This podcast is a production of Thanks the leading CRM and digital engagement solution for restaurants. Until next time, keep fighting, food fighters.